Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you news this week from the United States, Argentina, Germany, Portugal, and India. We're going to close out this week's episode with a see you in hell. That's the celebration of a fascist's death in history, this time from fascist Italy. Starting out in the United States, the Republican presidential primary has had its first and sort of last results at the same time. Earlier this week, Donald Trump won in both the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. Both of these results were kind of close, especially in Iowa. However, he won them both pretty handily, especially for a candidate who didn't actually do all of that much campaigning, particularly in Iowa. In Iowa, Donald Trump was facing a bunch of candidates, many of whom dropped out near the end of the race's timeline because, you know, they were going to lose. The only two people who he was really facing in Iowa were Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, and Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, and also Donald Trump's ambassador to the United Nations when he was the president. Ron DeSantis dropped out after his second-place finish in Iowa because it was much too close to Nikki Haley's third-place finish, making them both essentially second-place candidates. Nikki Haley stayed in, hoping, I guess, for some kind of squeak victory in New Hampshire, and she did very well in New Hampshire. She got in the mid-40s against Donald Trump's victory in, you know, over 50%. Nikki Haley says that she is staying in the race, despite the fact that You know, she was really banking all of her hopes on both Iowa and New Hampshire. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the United States presidential primary system, basically those are the races in their very small states where it's possible for like, you know, a scrappy candidate and their team to maybe eke out a victory and make a name for themselves and a place for themselves in a presidential primary race. Now that those are over, the next two races in the Republican presidential primary to determine who the Republicans are going to nominate for president are Nevada, in which Nikki Haley is not really polling well at all. She is currently polling, like uh, as of the last poll, she's polling behind Ron DeSantis, who dropped out. And the next race is a primary in her home state, or at least the state that she served as governor in, South Carolina. However, in South Carolina, Nikki Haley is polling 40% behind Donald Trump. So, like, what she's staying in for, to, to, to be humiliated by losing her home state to a president that she thinks is dangerous? Like, she all but says that. Essentially, this means that Donald Trump is all but guaranteed the nomination for the Republican Party ahead of the November election. Essentially, barring, I guess, him going to jail or something else happening. In further U.S. news, which is also Polish news... Billionaire Elon Musk made a really distasteful visit to Auschwitz with right-wing talking head Ben Shapiro. Musk claims that if Twitter had existed during the Holocaust, the Holocaust would not have happened. This is one of his claims when he was visiting the prison and extermination camp. Apparently, Elon Musk and whoever, you know, conceived of this meet and greet for him had never heard of newspapers, which very widely reported the Holocaust and anti-Semitic laws in Nazi Germany, but which were largely ignored by white Americans because of their being anti-Semitic. And I guess Elon Musk had never contemplated what exactly would happen to international telecommunication systems in the case of a total war. I don't know. 
Further in U.S. news, the Patriot Front, a right-wing fascist paramilitary organization that uses sort of blue uniforms with face-covering white masks that, that like cover the entire head of, of their members, they made a field trip to New York City. Specifically, they went to the World Trade Center. This happened earlier this week. Uh, it featured comical scenes of these supposed, you know, superior Aryans being incapable of understanding how to figure out a mass transit turnstile. Just like any other tourist, you know, you can look up videos of them bunching around and like looking at each other. One of them's figured out and is like helping everybody else get in, but it's taking a million years and they're going to miss their train. Eventually, a bunch of them end up jumping over the turnstile and facing no consequences because they're white nationalists. Finally, in U.S. news, the woman who runs Libs of TikTok, which is a fascist news outlet on the TikTok platform, has been appointed to the leadership of the library system in the state of Oklahoma by its GOP leader, Ryan Walters. Moving on to Argentina, the Argentine court has blocked major changes to the Argentine labor code that were implemented, or at least attempted to be implemented, by President Javier Millet. Millet pushed through these changes as an executive order, or the Argentine equivalent of an executive order. These orders were protested by Argentina's largest labor unions, who have always been a, you know, pretty stable, at least populist force in the country, if not generally lefty. You know, some of them trend a little bit right-wing, though. An Argentine court, like I said, has declared that these changes are unconstitutional. These changes specifically deal with uh, changes to how workers calculate their hours worked, and also the most controversial changes which prevent workers from congregating and working with one another, specifically in order to prevent strike action by workers in Argentina. These changes could be pushed through again if Millet achieves approval for them in the Argentine Congress, which is something that could very well happen given the makeup of the Argentine legislature at this point. In Germany, the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, Germany's extreme right-wing political party, is in a really tough spot, specifically because millions of people have come out in the streets to protest against them in the previous weeks, partly because they're doing relatively well in polling, and that means that they are getting scarier and scarier. Also because of a meeting that leaders of AFD had, which included some extreme right-wing figures in Germany, like actual neo-Nazis, which is, you know, it's just like pretty straight up illegal and not allowed to work with neo-Nazis in Germany. This meeting that AFD had with neo-Nazis was about their planning to propose a mass deportation legislation bill and to support it in Germany, you know, to get everybody who is not white out of Germany is essentially their goal, although, you know, their claim would be that it's about, you know, quote unquote, illicit immigration, something like that. The leader of AFD, Alice Weil, has also said that she wants to have a referendum on Germany leaving the EU, although I suspect that this is partly a screen to try to get attention off of this collusion with extreme right-wing parties. And speaking of extreme right-wing collusion, this one isn't national, but instead international. The leader of the Portuguese party Chega, which essentially means like enough, has been doing extremely well in the polls. Portugal is going to face a national election this year, very early this year. It's one of the countries that's facing a major national election this year. 
And Shega might do quite well. It's entirely possible that they will end up in government as a junior partner to Portugal's center right-wing party. Shega is an extreme right-wing party. They are nationalist, they are racist, they are homophobic. And their leader has met with one of Jair Bolsonaro's children, an attempt to cement an international right-wing coalition between Brazil and Portugal, the likes of which we have not seen since the mid-20th century, when both countries were run by sort of quasi-fascistic organizations called, they both called themselves, the Estado Novo, the new state. Finally, moving on to India, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has personally opened a temple, a Hindu temple, built on the site of a destroyed mosque. This further cements his position as the leader not just of India, the nation-state, but of Hindu nationalism as a religious and conservative movement. It also further cements his government's position that India is a country for Hindus and not for people who follow other religions. Modi supporters claim that this mosque was built sort of illicitly hundreds of years ago on the site of this former Hindu temple, which is extremely important to Hindu people religiously. Finally, going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Luigi Federzoni, an Italian fascist. Federzoni was born in Bologna in 1878. He did relatively well in school and eventually worked as a newspaper writer in Rome. That was what he studied. He went to school to become a journalist. He used his journalistic career to launch himself into a position as a leading nationalist in pre-war, that is pre-World War I, Italy. He entered the national legislature as a nationalist and spent his time there berating all of the establishment political figures, that is, the center-left, the center-right, and the far-left, the socialists and the communists. He became a leading figure in this nationalist position in Italy. This is pre-fascism. He, like many other nationalists, wanted Italy to enter World War II. Specifically, he wanted Italy to enter World War II against the Austrians, whom he considered to be holding a bunch of what he and many other Italian nationalists considered to be, you know, natural Italian territory on the eastern side of the Adriatic Sea in what is today Croatia and Slovakia. When Italy did finally enter the war, yes, against the Entente powers, against the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, he made good on his claim that he would join the army if he did so. He joined the military as a lieutenant and served in the artillery where he did relatively well and was a decorated officer. He survived the war and returned to Italian politics again as a leading nationalist figure. He was not an early member of the Italian fascist party. However, he was an ardent supporter of it when it became apparent that this was the right you know, horse to hitch yourself to. He supported Mussolini when Mussolini staged his march on Rome, his coup against the Italian national state that essentially cemented the permanent power of the Italian fascist party in Italy. Fertizzoni got a nice position by the new fascist government, first as the minister for the colonies, which meant administering various African and other Mediterranean territories held by the Italian state at the time. And then eventually, after a cabinet reshuffle, he got the extremely good, very powerful position of Minister for the Interior, 
which just as a reminder to U.S. listeners, in the United States, the, you know, the Department of the Interior means like parks and, you know, national parks and stuff like that. In other countries, the Minister for the Interior means that you control the national police force. It would mean like controlling the FBI or also, you know, the National Guard and stuff like that. It's an extremely powerful position. Fred has only held this position for quite a long time in Italy and was also granted a position in the Grand Council of Fascism. Nominally, this was the leading body in the Italian fascist state. However, eventually, Ferrazzoni and the other leaders in the Grand Council of Fascism saw the writing on the wall and knew that Italy was going to lose the war. This was happening when Italy was being invaded by the United States, France, and the United Kingdom from the south. In 1943, the Grand Council of Fascism staged a vote about whether or not to remove Benito Mussolini from the Italian fascist government, and they did so. They, they successfully removed Benito Mussolini from the Italian fascist government, and they were condemned by the rump state of the Italian fascists, the Italian Socialist Republic, which the Nazi Germans established in northern Italy under Mussolini's thumb. Ferrazzoni escaped judgment both by the Italian Socialist Republic, this sort of post-fascist, fascist Italy, and also from the post-war Italian government. Specifically, in 1943, he fled judgment by the Italian fascists by seeking refuge in the Portuguese embassy in the Vatican, he, of course, having already been in Rome. At this time, the Portuguese were controlled by the Estado Novo dictatorship of Salazar, the Portuguese right-wing dictator, who provided refuge for a lot of people who were fascists, both Italians, Germans, Hungarians, Romanians, etc. He was tried in absentia by the Italian post-war country and was sentenced to life in prison, in 1945. However, he was, like I said, tried in absentia. They could not find him because he was being hidden by the Catholic Church and by the Portuguese state. He took the rat lines to Latin America via Portugal. The rat lines were a system of human smuggling, human trafficking that the Portuguese and Spanish states, both of them quasi-fascist, used to help fascists from fascist countries in Europe to escape to Latin America in the late 1940s. The rat lines were very successful for Federzoni. He lived in Latin America up until 1947, when he was amnestied by the Italian post-war state. He returned to Portugal in 48, and there he taught literature in Lisbon and Coimbra, two major university towns in Portugal. He eventually returned to Rome in 1951, and dedicated his life to his family and to historical research and writing, writing his own memoirs, etc., etc. He died in Rome this week in history, the 24th of January, 1967, of old age. And so, Luigi Federzoni, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on, and I mean that sincerely. Please leave a review. Tell friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. Rather than checking my Patreon, go to Medicine Sans Frontières, that's Doctors Without Borders. Check out the Red Cross or the Red Crescent or the Gaza Children's Fund. Uh, if you would like to reach out to me and ask me a question that I could answer on a future question and answer episode, you can reach me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. That's spelled out on all one word. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H-I-S-T of the right, and fascism15, again, that's spelled out. 
And on Blue Sky, I am 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C, 15 mins of fash. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.